We're going to be in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20 this morning, and then we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. Exodus chapter 20, Romans chapter 7. So you can kind of keep your finger there at Romans 7. We'll get there here in just a few minutes. We've been in the book of Exodus now. Carson Newman students, welcome back. We've been in the book of Exodus uh, all throughout the spring, took a break for the summer, just got right back into it last week. So we are uh, we are rolling here. A couple weeks ago, I was riding with Abby and Isaiah in the car. We had a little bit of time in the car. And... Uh, and uh, started going through with them. I'm not even sure how this conversation came up, but we got in a conversation about Christian music and the change that Christian music has gone through uh, in my lifetime. Now, some of this stuff's going to be completely lost on some of you, to which you're probably blessed for that. But uh, I walked them through what is basically the Spotify history of Christian music since the mid-1980s. And we talked about what music sounded like in church where I grew up, standard organ, piano, and out-of-tune singers. That was what we did. That was Christian music so far as I knew. And then on Sunday nights, you could have some special singing, and you would do some Southern gospel. Like, that was... Christian music so far as I knew. And then somewhere in the 80s there, something crazy happened, and Love 89 came, came around on the radio, and it started playing uh, music that people thought, I don't know if they can do this. This is pretty rebellious. Things like Amy Grant and things like Stephen Curtis Chapman, really hard rock type of people. Not really. But... but that, that was a rebellious thing for a lot of people, and it was stuff that should be on the radio, not necessarily in church. Are you allowed to do music like that? And from there, we went on through Jars of Clay, Cabin's Call, Rebecca St. James, DC Talk, most of the CCM catalog of the, of the late 1990s. We went through two or three different albums of, of the, not now that's what I call music, but wow, that's what I call music. So if you guys remember the wow CDs, the knockoff of the now CDs. Uh, we went through all of those, and I'm sure my kids were bored out of their mind. But man, as I went through those, those CDs, as I started listening through those albums on Spotify, it was one after another of, oh, I remember this song. I had forgotten about this song. I forgot all about this song, and I would just start singing the words. Like, I just knew I hadn't heard these songs in over a decade, but I just start singing the song, probably two decades. I just start singing the songs. I just knew them. I, and it just kind of kept on going, and they just, they just, I just kept listening to them. And my kids were well checked out at that point, but that's fine. I was enjoying it. And, but that's kind of what the book of Exodus has been for us so far. Stories we know well, maybe we haven't heard them in a long time, but at some point in our lives, we have heard them, especially if you've been in church. You've heard a lot of these stories, from Moses being put in the river as a baby, to the plagues, to the burning bush to the exodus itself, to the manna that was, was de- delivered to them miraculously. These things that, even if you didn't grow up in church, they have some ring of familiarity to you. Is it at least like a song you've heard on the radio at one point, like, oh yeah, 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 I've heard this. I, I know what you're talking about here. This is kind of what the book of Exodus is as you go through it. Kind of the, the greatest hits from Sunday school years and from uh, Bible study years. And the Ten Commandments, which we are going to start today, are perhaps the most well-known of any text in all of Scripture. They are posted on walls of courthouses. They are posted on walls of churches. They are put on yard signs for people to put in their yard. They are in mailers that show up at your house trying to teach you about the law and about the Ten Commandments. They are the foundation for the bulk of the Western legal system. They are the source of endless legal conflicts 
from their displays at public courthouses to their displays at public schools. Most everyone has heard something about the Ten Commandments. Now, maybe they don't know the lyrics by heart, but they know the tune, and they know what it is when it's playing on the radio. They know the beat, and they can still sing along with parts of it. But despite all the hoopla, despite all the well-rehearsed lyrics and the times they've been played over and over and over, most don't know what to do with the Ten Commandments, Christian or non-Christian. What do you do with these? Should you love them or should you hate them? Should we obey them, all of them, or should we just obey part of them? Or should we ignore them altogether? Are they too restrictive and archaic or are they too simple and just a beginning guide to ethics but not really something a modern society can live by? Or are they a hard code that we must adhere to at all costs? Over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about all kinds of aspects of the Ten Commandments, the role that they should play in our lives. And we're going to cover a lot of ground, and unapologetically, we're going to do a lot of theology. We're going to talk about some very important things. And as I begin this sermon today and introduce the Ten Commandments, I want to say two things. All right, so I don't have a ton of stories in this sermon, not a lot of emotional highs and lows. No lasers, no theatrical tricks. We're just going to talk about what the Bible teaches us here in the book of Exodus and then what we can learn as Paul teaches us a little bit more about these laws. But this sermon might be the most important one you'll ever hear me preach. You could go here for the next 20 years and hear every sermon that I have to preach from here on out and not hear one that is more important than what I'm about to share with you over the next 35 or 40 minutes. The second thing that I want to say, and I mean this, my sermon really may not be that big a deal at all. And I mean both of those statements with 100% sincerity. Such is the nature of the law in the Christian's life. So with that introduction, let's do something crazy and let's just read the Ten Commandments and see what is there. So Exodus chapter 20 Verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Again, remember last week what we covered. Verse 2, he has already brought them out of the land of slavery. Verse 3, now he gives them the commands. Don't reverse those two. You reverse those two, you don't have Christianity anymore, you have some other religion. First, he saved them. Then he gave them the commands. So verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, 
and rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may go long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So there you are. That is the Ten Commandments. I don't remember much about my sixth grade Sunday school class. I don't remember much about what we talked about. I couldn't tell you a single lesson except for one. And it was a lesson on the Ten Commandments. And I can go right back to the classroom that I was in, the uncomfortable chairs that I was sitting in, the, 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 the single window in the, the dungeon of the, the classroom that we were in, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Because we went through the Ten Commandments in this class one by one. I'd only been attending church for a few months. I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. I didn't know a whole lot about Jesus. I didn't know a whole lot about uh, any of those things, but... But I knew about the Ten Commandments. I had heard of those before I came to church. And as we went through them one by one, I knew, even without much of a church background, that the Ten Commandments was not good news for me. I knew that the Ten Commandments would be a very bad place. These things I'd always heard about, how important they were, how much society needed them, how much Christianity was built upon them, all that may have been true. But for me, I had some very big problems because I was starting to get a little bit interested in this Christianity thing this church thing and this seemed to be a major problem for me because if Christianity is built on these 10 rules then that meant at least in my mind that I couldn't follow them if I couldn't follow them then Christianity was not for me perhaps I could still go to church perhaps I could still be a good person Perhaps I could still kind of finesse my way into a, a, a place where maybe I don't get to be a part of the club, but I can still get a pat on the back from those that are in the club. Like that, That's what was going through my mind. I remember considering those things as a sixth grader work, working through this. Because if the Ten Commandments were what Christianity was built on, I knew I couldn't be that. So I had a problem. I had to try and sort through these before I could even begin to ask the question, what did it look like for me to follow Jesus if I wasn't allowed to follow Jesus in the first place because I couldn't follow the Ten Commandments? And I wonder, what were you thinking as I read through those Ten Commandments? Were you kind of ho-hum? You've heard them before? Yeah, I know these. I remember reading these. I remember studying these when I was a kid. I remember, I remember a, a sermon that I heard about these before. I I, yeah, I know these things. I've seen these somewhere before. Okay, whatever. Unfortunately, that's probably where most of us land when you read the Ten Commandments. Familiarity has bred not contempt, although for some that would be true, but for most of us it has bred boredom. But as we saw last week, that is one response we cannot have. God's specific instructions about the giving of this law show us very clearly that he was deadly serious about what's happening here in Exodus chapter 20. The reaction of God's people show us that boredom and complacency is not an option. Look in verse 18. 
Verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood very far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. The context is deadly serious. And so should we. So in light of this, what should we do? This text has been foundational to so many different things. From legal systems to, religious, uh, to religions and, and different religious systems. If it's this important, then surely we have to do something with what is going on here in Exodus 20. If it's this important, then what else can we have? What other response can we have other than to obey these? If the people of God are even afraid at the delivering of them, how much more should we place ourselves under them and say, we have to obey here. We have to follow their lead. Not only that, if you ask King David, just a few centuries later, he'll tell you how wonderful this law is. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward." The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it would be easy for me to read through Exodus chapter 20, move to Psalm 19, and then give you the exhortation that is exactly that. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the law. It is good for you. Obey them. Let's pray and let's go eat. The problem is when you start going through them, and if you follow that exhortation, let's, let's, let's respect them, let's revere them, let's love them, and let's obey them. The problem with that is, let's just, let's just start with the first one. You should have no other gods before me. That is explicitly driving us to make sure that God is in the driver's seat of our lives at all times. Not money, not education, not girlfriends and boyfriends, not spouses, not children, not success, not comfort, not even yourself. He is only God that we can have. So how are you doing on the first one? I'm 0 for 1, right? I'm 0 for 1 on like seven different levels. Like I struck out on every pitch that he threw me there. All of those have been gods for me at some point in my life. All of those are things that I war with constantly. So if my exhortation to you is obey them, and then you read the first one and you realize, uh-oh, I can't, I can't do more. We could go on down the list and we can compare them with how Jesus explains them on the Sermon on the Mount. Do, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, that to, to look on someone with lust in your heart is to commit adultery. Don't murder. Jesus says to carry anger in your heart towards someone is the same as murder. So how are you guys doing now? Don't steal. Don't lie. Honor your mother and father. 
How are we doing, guys? I'm over. Like, I, I, can't, I can't follow up on any of these. And so if my exhortation to you is just obey these, well, I've just put you in a really hard position. Because what I've told you is, you just need to try harder. You just need to be better. And if you just try harder and you just be better, well, then you'll be better. But the problem is we know our hearts. We know our sin. And we know that whenever we read this, we are in trouble. Just like I saw myself as that sixth grader, I realize this is a problem for me. So if I stand here and tell you that these things are foundational to our faith, and if you're going to call yourself a good Christian, then you better be really good at following these ten commands. This world is built on convincing you that you are failing at every turn of your life. And the Christian faith now is very quick to pile on. You are a failure. And this is what it screams here. It's why so many people have walked away from the Christian faith. It's why so many people won't even give you an ear whenever you bring up Jesus. Because they don't need more rules that they know that they can't or won't or some combination of the two obey. So now what? Where do we go from here? So, Pastor, are you telling me that the, 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 the ten rules that we've had on the church walls and thrust on our face as the bedrock, Christ, as the, the, the bedrock for the Christian faith should, be, should just be thrown out? Should we just walk away from them in order to make Christianity look better, to make it look more relevant, to make it look less archaic? Surely that's not what you're saying, Pastor. Well, let's ask somebody else then. Let's ask the Apostle Paul. Let's see what he says. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. You can turn over there. We'll be there for a while. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Do you see that? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there you go. There's the switch. There's the turn. Paul says it. Just walk away from the law. We are free from it. We have died to it. We have been released. So there you are. The Ten Commandments don't matter anymore. Have a good day. King David was wrong. Enjoy your lunch. It's not quite that simple. How can we just walk away from something like the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's the Ten Commandments. It's foundational to everything. How can we just walk away from that? That seems too important. It has too much weight. Pastor, you can't tell me just to walk away from that. This morning, what I want you to see is that both approaches to the law, the one that says obey it and find your righteousness in it, and the one that says forget it, that's old news, are wrong. You're saying, well, hang on just a second. Are you saying now not, not that, that David was right and Paul was right? Are you saying Paul and David are both wrong? 
Well, that's pretty bold, Pastor. Can you really stand up there and say King David and the Apostle Paul are wrong about the law? What kind of preacher are you anyway? Are you just going to make this up as you go and just give us your own set of things that you have to do? What is going on here? No, what I want you to see is that Paul and David are both 100% right. They are both spot on. The law is a beautiful thing that will be as sweet as honey. Something that has been completely surpassed all at the same time. It is sweet as honey. Beautiful to know and to, and to follow. And completely surpassed and completely done away with all at the same time. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. You're, you're speaking in, in contradiction. You're speaking in, in a paradox there. Well, maybe... But just follow with me, and I think we'll be able to see what Paul is saying and what David is saying. You see, for so many, the law is seen as this path to righteousness. And the only thing that we are lacking is obedience. The law, the Ten Commandments, becomes the pathway to being righteous. The only thing that we need to be righteous is then to follow that pathway. That's the nature of the law. The more obedient you are, the more righteous you become. But that is fundamentally skewed and incorrect view of what the law is for. So let's look at the next verse in Romans chapter 7. So 7, 7. Paul says, in light of the fact that we're dead to the law, we're released from the law. Verse 7, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So what Paul is telling us here is that the old law may, may be dead, but it still serves a purpose for us today. It may be a part of an old covenant, and we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. It may be a part of an old covenant, but even in the new covenant, the old law serves us today, and it serves its purpose well. And that's purpose is not that it be the cure for our unrighteousness. So you understand this mindset that, I, that I'm talking about, right? The cure for our unrighteousness is that we be more righteous. This is what so much of religion and, and so much of even religion in the name of Christianity is built on. If you want to stop being unrighteous, just be more righteous. This is how so many people present the Christian message. We have the righteousness. Come over here with us and be good like us. But that's not how the law works. You see, the law is not the medicine that you take for your sickness. It's the x-ray, it's the MRI that diagnoses the sickness. When Abby was about three years old, she really likes to tell the story about how she broke my knee. Like that's still one of her favorite stories to tell. I was, I was wrestling with her, I was down in this kind of like really awkward position down here, and, and, and I was wrestling with her, and I moved in a funny way, and my knee went and it was bad, and I knew it was bad, like right at the moment. I just told Emily, take Abby, get her away from here. Oh my gosh, I've really hurt myself. And so I just sat there, I'm, I'm looking up on my phone, how to know if you tore an ACL. Like, and, and it says, if your knee swells up like a grapefruit in about 30 minutes, you've torn your ACL. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to sit here and see what happens, because I'm hurting really bad. So I sat there for about 30 minutes, nothing happened. So I'm thinking, all right, whew. This hurts, but it didn't swell up. So my ACL is good, all is well. But I knew something was wrong, because it hurt. I had to figure out what in the world was, was going on. I mean, it, it hurt whenever... So 
for the, over the course of the next week, I could walk, as long as it was slowly, and in a straight line, all was fine. But if I turned like this, it was all over. I was done for. I remember once I was walking in a, in a gym, my old job, I was walking, somebody hollered my name, said, hey, Tony, and I turned like this, and I just went, Whoa, fell down in the floor. And they gave me that awkward look of, do I call an ambulance or laugh at you? And I'm like, probably both at this point. That's, that's about how I, I feel. So I was hurt. So immediately I called and I said, all right, this thing's not going to heal. I, this is getting worse as the days go. Went to KOC. They did their initial workup. They decided I had probably either torn my meniscus or perhaps one of my other ligaments, not my ACL, but one of my other ligaments. They needed to get an MRI to be able to diagnose what had happened. So I had to go sit in the tube, let them look at my leg for about 20 minutes. But when I came out of the MRI and they said, it's what we thought, you have a torn meniscus. I didn't go, all right, that's great, and then start jumping around. Because if I had, what would have happened? I would have been back on the floor in a big heap. Because I had been diagnosed with a torn meniscus. The MRI had diagnosed my problem that was already suspected by the doctor, but I had not been healed. I had not been changed at all. It had revealed to me what the problem was, but it had not corrected the problem. Does that make sense? you tracking with that? This is one use for the law. We'll talk about other uses for the law here over the course of the next couple of weeks. But this is one use that the law has for us. And that is why the law is so important and we cannot just jettison it away. It diagnoses our spiritual condition. It tells us where our heart is in relation to what God's standard is and to who God is. And this is what Paul says. Now I know what it means to covet. And now that I know what it means to covet, I know that I'm a coveter. I know that's what I do. Now that I know what it means to lie, I know that I'm a liar. Paul isn't surprised by the the diagnosis. He had already suspected it. But when the MRI revealed it, he said, That confirms what I already thought. I just didn't have a name for it. Now I do. He's given the category. It confirms what he already suspected. So this is what Paul means when he says that we are slaves to the law and that we are slaves to sin. He says that in other places. I would go to all these places, but we'd be here all day. What Paul means when he says that we are slaves to the law and slaves to sin, two things that are seemingly completely opposite. How can you be slaves to the law and to sin? These things are opposites. How can we be slaves to both of them? This is what he means. We are slaves to sin and that when we know the law, it opens our eyes to our sin. And when we see our sin, it only pushes our flesh towards sin even more. We are slaves to the law and that we will work our fingers to the bone in an effort to absolve ourselves of the guilt that comes in association with that sin. So do you see how those two things work together? Slaves to the law, slaves to sin. When we know our sin, we can try to run from it, but our flesh goes back to it every time. And then when our flesh goes back to it every time, the guilt that comes with it, we try to obey the law in order to absolve ourselves for it, and so now we are slaves to the law as well. We become a slave to the letter of the law, and we become religious zealots for our cause, but we know nothing of God only his laws. We do all the things that we think we're supposed to in order to become a good Christian. This is what it means to be a slave to the law. 
We give money, we go to church, we learn the lingo, we wear the mask, we raise our hands in church, we learn how to pray just right, we serve in the right ministry so that we feel great about ourselves and we're exhausted trying to become the perfect Christian. Recently, there's been several high-profile Christians that are songwriters and pastors and band leaders that have walked away from the Christian faith. And they have said very loudly and proudly, we are no longer anything that you can call a Christian. I do not know their hearts. I do not know where they were previously. I do not know what God will do with them in the future. But what was clear to them is that they knew all the lingo. They knew the vocabulary. They could write some of the songs that we sing here on Sunday mornings. They could preach sermons that are wonderfully centered around the gospel. They could do all these things because they knew the vocabulary. They knew the right things to do at the right time. But that doesn't make us a Christian. That makes us good law-abiding people. At least some of the time. And they were exhausted. And they gave up. This morning, I want to plead with you. Evaluate your heart evaluate your life ask yourself the question where do you see yourself in relation to this law i'm not asking if you strive to follow the law or if obedience is important to your life we'll see how that plays out over the next two weeks so we'll we'll get there i'm asking are you a slave to it or are you a slave to sin or to both Whichever it is, it means you aren't a slave to Christ. Either you're a slave to your own sinful flesh or to your efforts to atone for it through your own self-righteousness. But they come from the same place. And that's the diagnosis that the law gives us. So then the question we have to ask is, if the law diagnoses us, then what is it that cures us if, if coming out of that MRI machine doesn't help me and the doctor says, go, you're healed, and then I turn around and walk away and I collapse again, what is it that will cure me? I've been diagnosed, but what fixes me? My knee was messed up. What I had to have was surgery. I needed to go to the doctor. I needed to have him open my knee up, get in my knee, and fix it. So spiritually then, what is the cure for us? I'm glad you asked. Let's keep reading in Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Paul says, Did that which is good then, he's talking about the law, still saying it's good, that which is good then bring death to me. By no means. It it was sin producing death in me through what is good. So the sin being diagnosed by the law produced death in him in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Can you relate to this? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not absolving himself from guilt here. He's just acknowledging the fact that his flesh continues to do it even whenever he tries to stop it. For I know, I, ha- I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, 
but not the ability to carry it out. He's a slave to his sin and to the law. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Do you see how this continues to diagnose him? Paul's explaining his diagnosis right here. He's reading the x-ray for you. He's reading the MRI for you. He says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can you hear his desperation here? Can you hear how desperate he is? He needs a cure. He's been diagnosed. The doctor has walked up and he said it's cancer and it's terminal. And he says, I've got to find a cure for this. I can't let this kill me. Do you feel his desperation here? He's wrapped up in in chains. He's beat down. His condition has been diagnosed. He's staring at the results and what can he do? Does she just need to try harder? Does, does he need to change his diet? Does he need to change this and change that? Does he, does he need to tweak a few things? Because, you know, if I need to get acupuncture, that's fine. I'll go do that if that'll heal me. Do, I'll do anything if that heals me. But then he realizes if the instructions are try harder, he's in trouble because he already has. He can't try harder. He tries hard, and the flesh tries harder. The more he tries to do what is right, the more the flesh takes over and does what is wrong. He realizes he can't try hard enough. He can't get there. The law was a taskmaster, and his sin was a slave master. So now what does he do? Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So who will deliver him? Jesus. Thanks be to God, Jesus. And then he restates his condition, and then he tells us the most freeing thing that he can in, verse, in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So following Christ, coming to Jesus, submitting yourself to Him has set you free from all of this other stuff. It is the cure for the disease that is killing you. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law couldn't do it, but God did. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the law is dead, but it's not done. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled in Christ. So the cure is not our obedience, which we cannot maintain. That's no cure at all. That is condemnation. Our cure is that Christ has maintained that obedience. And now Christ has done what the law could not do. Secured our righteousness in Him. This, my friends, is the most important thing I can ever tell you. I cannot tell you anything more important than this. Your eternity hangs in the balance right here. You must let the law diagnose you. 
And when it does, you must throw yourself on the cure. And there is no other cure. There is nothing else. There is nothing you can bring yourself to. There is no religious ordinance you can do. There's no amount of money you can give. There's no church program you can serve in. There's nothing that you can do. So when you read those Ten Commandments and you realize this is not good news for me, then ask the question, where can I find good news? That's the definition of the word gospel. It is the good news. So the bad news is your sin has made you sick and it will kill you. And the good news is Christ can make you whole if you will come to him. Which is why I can say that in some ways this sermon is the most important thing I'll ever say. But in relation to the nature of the Ten Commandments, I can also say it's not really that big of a deal because the law just doesn't have that kind of power anymore. Christ has stripped it of its power. Stripped it of its power to condemn because there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in some ways, it's the most important thing I can say, and for other reasons, it's just not that big of a deal because the law doesn't have the power. And it's the same way that Jesus can say something like this from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until, it is all, until all is accomplished. Therefore, who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He can say that because he fulfilled the, the demands of the law, that not one iota of it will pass away. The demands of the law are still there. They're just not on you to fulfill because Christ has fulfilled them. He abolished its power to condemn us, but he keeps its power to guide us, which is why he says don't relax one little bit of this. This is what we'll talk about the next two weeks. We'll break it down kind of in half. And we'll talk about the power of the law to now guide us. Not to enslave us. Not to take us over. But to now guide us to flourish. To know God better. And to worship Him in spirit and in truth. This is the message of the gospel. The law has condemned us. But Christ has freed us. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this truth this morning, that you did not just give us a list of rules and tell us that our righteousness is dependent upon our ability to follow them. But instead, you gave us a list, a law, and then you followed that up with the only hope to fulfill that law in your son, Jesus. Father, for those of us in here this morning that are slaves to sin, 
that read through that list of the Ten Commandments and can just look at all of their failures that they had last week, that they had yesterday, that they had this morning, and that they're probably going to have in the week to come. Their sin is ever before them. As we read through the Ten Commandments this morning, Father, for them, they feel the stench of death and the shame of failure. Father, for them this morning, may they sense perhaps for the first time a sense of hope. To be encouraged. That that's not just true of them, that's true of us all. Not one of us has maintained the law. Father, for those of us in here that are slaves to the law, that are working our fingers to the bone to try to appease you, to try to appease the power of the law, to try to find our righteousness and our obedience, Father, I pray that today would be a freeing moment. That we would realize that our our hope and your pleasure is not found in our obedience, but in Christ. Father, may we know him and the freedom of his grace who's broken the power of sin and death, fulfilled the law, and given us a new covenant that's written on our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For those of you that maybe heard that message for the first time, that perhaps that's not what you know of Christianity, what you know of Christianity is just obedience, just following the Ten Commandments, and you know how short you you fall. But you know you need the hope of Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, you've never heard that message, I'd love to talk with you, to pray with you. There's others that would love to do the same. I'll be standing in the back. Maybe you came with someone this morning that would love to go to lunch with you and talk with you about that. For the rest of you, for for those of you that have been in church forever and have done everything you can to try and fulfill the law's demands, You are no more righteous than the one who walks in here and knows their sin. Perhaps this is the first time that you've heard that. Maybe the first time it's connected to your heart to know you can't do it. And you need to be set free from the slavery of the law. I'd love to pray with you too. I'd love to talk more with you about that. I'll be available in the back. Others will be around. Love to stay and talk with you afterwards.